Hi friends, welcome to another episode of the Mystery Bible on Podcast. You have myself, Joel, and also Dan here for this episode. This is episode 12, and we're so pleased to be that far along with these episodes. Many of you have been with us since the beginning, and have heard every episode and some of them multiple times, and some of you are brand new to the audience, and we're grateful to have you. We always say this, but it is really in our hearts as we start every episode that it is so much fun to be able to talk about fun topics from a biblical perspective and know that there are people who are excited to listen to it. We have our great community on our Telegram thread, and I'll put key links and key things in the show notes so you can click on the kind of expand the notes at the bottom of your favorite podcast app where you're hearing this, and you should be able to see links and be able to join any communities there. Also, you're welcome to contact us directly at mysterybibleon at gmail.com. Any of those emails that come through, I share with uh, the team. We've got a couple we need to respond to, and we're really, uh, we really appreciate, even if you don't get an immediate response from us, we love hearing from you, and we're so glad to have your engagement. So tonight, or for this episode, I say tonight because it's nighttime when we're recording this, because that's when it's quiet and when we're not scheduled for other things. And we really appreciate that from Dan. He's on the East Coast, so he's his nighttime. He starts late at night and we start early in the evening. Tonight, we're going to be tackling the first episode of what I hope will be several in a book that you have heard us mention a handful of times, but I don't think very many of you have read. And the book is Birthright by Timothy Alberino. That's Alberino is A-L-B-E-R-I-N-O. The book is Birthright, and the subtitle is The Coming Post-Human Apocalypse and the Usurpation of Adam's Dominion on Planet Earth. So bold title, bold book. Dan, I can speak for myself and for the other hosts here, um, even though Brian's not here tonight, he'll be joining us, I, we hope and expect, for the uh, the next recording. But we really like this book. This is This book synthesizes a lot of the ideas and a lot of the things that we've discussed. It does it in a thoughtful, biblically-based way, and it builds on itself. So our plan is to diverge a little bit from our normal format, where we're not going to cover this whole book in a single episode. We're going to take a handful of episodes. And so tonight, the plan is to do a general overview and talk about the first couple of chapters. We do encourage you to get a copy of Birthright by Timothy Alberino and read it. Our podcast is not to be a substitute. We're not just trying to poach off his content. If we can get Timothy Alberino on the show, we'd love to. But do get a copy of the book. Unfortunately, it's not available on audio, but um, there are uh, it's, it's available in print. And then there are some really good podcast recordings out there on Blurry Creatures and a few others. If you search his name in the podcast apps, you'll find some uh, interviews with him. So we are really excited about this, and we're looking forward to getting into this particular book and these particular topics. And you can expect some of the odd topics like extraterrestrials and how it applies from a biblical perspective and some of the edgier things we've discussed. So get excited, buckle up, and we're excited to get going with you. So I would like to hand this over to Dan to talk a little bit about his impression of the books uh, of this book, how he found it, what his thoughts were reading it, and um, kind of the general overview. 
anything that really jumped out. We're not too worried about spoiler alerts. You know, we can tease some of the weirder stuff there and it does get weird in some places that, that comes up and uh, we'll get to it as we work through because the book is a progression of logic and a progression of thought to build to some uh, pretty powerful conclusions towards the back end of it. So Dan, what do you think of Birthright and what did you think as you encountered it? How'd you find the book uh, and what's your impression and, and what's your synopsis for somebody who's hasn't heard about it before? Yeah. Uh, so this, this is another one of those books that I have Joel to thank for, you know, Joel coming along and said, Hey, you should check out this book. So you get the book and, and it, it is a fascinating one. It, covers as Joel mentioned it it goes covers a lot of ground uh, from a lot of things that we've been talking about and then even some some more topics that we haven't gotten to yet um, you know it goes over 13 chapters and uh, he does a really good job of organizing it and um, and building a case throughout the book um, you know hitting on things like um, uh, and from, from the biblical perspective all the way, you know, through science and um, prophecy and and just looking at the, the world around us and what's likely coming. And he, he builds a pretty good case. Uh, he There is a fair amount of speculating in this book, but he does a really good job of pointing out when he's speculating. And but there's also a lot of things in here that, uh, he ba- backs up, uh, does a really good job backing up with scripture, what he's saying. And uh, and that's important because a lot of things he says are not things you normally hear in church, but they are biblical truth. And so uh, he does a good job breaking all that stuff down. And uh, one of the things I really appreciate him about him is he, he always, he, he does bring it back to, to Jesus. And uh, I will share just um, a quick quote here. This is uh, the note from the author just before chapter one. At the end of that, he talks about how um, Scripture kind of comes together and projects, quote, a multidimensional portrait of its divine author and communicates his plan to redeem, reconcile, and restore the sons and daughters of Adam to the glory of their original estate in the family of God. I pray that you will discover in the following pages a newfound fascination for the gospel of Christ, the greatest story ever told, and a renewed affection for Jesus of Nazareth, the greatest hero humanity has ever known. And uh, I think that does a good job summing up what he does, even though he goes off on all these uh, areas that that seem really weird and unusual, he does a great job always bringing it back to Christ. Thanks, Dan. I, I think that those are uh, really helpful observations. A couple of other things, just so that people can kind of know where Timothy Alberino sits before we talk about where he stands. Um, that's an old that's an old phrase from. Uh, was it David Rosenberg, the, the the radio host from Denver, like from many, many years ago, he would always say that. Mark Rosenberg, um, tell me where you sit before you tell me where you stand and it's it stuck. So a couple of things about Timothy Alberino. 
If you look him up, you'll find he has a YouTube channel. He's a little bit of a, a kind of a layman's archaeologist. He's spent quite a bit of time living in South America and spent time in Central America. He's done documentaries and hosted and produced documentaries on uh, megalithic structures from a uh, biblical perspective. So he's he has a, a, a pretty deep foundation in these uh, in these topics of kind of questioning the mainstream narrative. Well, you guys know we use that that word narrative a lot on this podcast. And the reason why we do is because we are questioning the mainstream narrative. We're bringing up the the typical narrative and bringing counter narratives into it and saying and, and you know laying them on the table to be examined. So Timothy Alberino, um, some people have called him a modern day Indiana Jones. That phrase gets thrown around a lot. Um, it's a, the blurb on the back says he's a writer, explorer, and filmmaker whose inquisitive mind and intrepid spirit have led him all over the world on investigative expeditions. Um, he dropped out of high school and moved to the Amazon jungle in Peru. Uh, he doesn't have a, a tremendous amount of uh, you know classical formal education, but he's a very bright guy. Uh, his book is uh, very well worded. He has big vocabulary. He writes very well. He speaks very eloquently when he speaks. He's a very smart guy and a good communicator. Uh, he's an accomplished autodidact and a scholarly researcher. And it says he writes with an academic flair, which is kind of what I was just saying. After years of rigorous study, he's garnered an expansive knowledge base that enables him to dissertate with authority on a wide variety of topics. He lives in Montana with his wife, Jasmine, and there are five boys who he names in here, and they have some pretty interesting names. Um, I think it's it's helpful to realize some of who the, he acknowledges in the acknowledgments and in the foreword of the book. Um, one that surprised me but doesn't when you kind of get to know his stuff is David Flynn, the author, David Flynn, the late David Flynn. He wrote about uh, Cydonia and then another one about Isaac Newton's concepts of time and put a really interesting biblical uh, perspective on that. Um, Tim Alberino is a big fan of Isaac Newton as well. And he, he mentions David Flynn specifically. Um, he also mentions uh, in his uh, foreword, he mentions C.S. Lewis, uh, who we've talked about a lot on this podcast. And then one of my favorites, who we haven't discussed a lot, but some of you have heard me mention before, Chuck Missler. He talks about Chuck Missler specifically um, as just kind of calls him out as, as somebody who gave him perspective on scripture. So that's Timothy Alberino. Um, he's, I think, in many ways, an up and coming influence in the space of the strange and esoteric when it comes to scripture. But as Dan mentioned, he loves Jesus. He's very gospel oriented, and he does always bring things back to the authority of Scripture. But he, you know, he has that contrarian perspective, and I respect that. But he's also intellectually honest enough to—I hate to use this term because it's so overused—but to evolve his perspectives over time. He changes his mind and reserves the right to do that from time to time. He uh, emphasizes things differently over the years as he continues to research and speak and write. So, you know, he doesn't think that he has every answer on everything. And what this book really is designed to do is to bring the the Christian believer into a place of seeing the world and seeing scripture and seeing ourselves from a, a very powerful biblical perspective of who we are and what are we doing here and what's the point and why is that so important and why is it more important now than maybe ever before? And what's going on in the world that makes us 
really pay attention to that. Dan and I were talking earlier today, and some of that stuff is literally in the headlines like this week, stuff that he was talking about. For reference, the book Birthright was originally published in 2020. So that means a lot of his thought process was forming prior to 2020, probably in the five to 10 years leading up to 2020 to produce this book. And then since then, as we're now well into 2023, then there's a you know then there's even more that that highlights the urgency of these topics. So, Dan, before we jump into chapter one and start talking about chapter one and the uh, the topics in chapter one, anything else you want to add or anything from the book that you want to tease as people uh, look forward? You can probably hear me flipping through some of the pages as I'm holding it in my hands and and kind of. Uh, looking at some of the different topics and all the dog-eared pages I have here. So anything you want to highlight, add, tease, um, emphasize, de-emphasize, anything about Timothy Alberino, any other suggestions for people to have perspective on birthright or uh, this thought process? Um, I would just echo what you said about recommending that people get this book. All right. Some of the books we have, have done episodes on, we don't necessarily recommend people get. Um, unless they're really interested on that particular topic. But this is one, uh, he does such a good job and it, and it does bring it all together. That This is one I, I would recommend just, it's a, it's a good one to have on your shelf and it's a good one to go back and reread and reference. Um, he, just, he just does a really good job with it. And if you're interested in the stuff that we talk about on this podcast, then this book will be right up your alley. Thank you, Dan. And you can learn more about Timothy Alberino at timothyalberino.com. One of the things you'll see there, and you can find this on Vimeo as well, and it is worth it. I, I paid for it and watched it. Uh, there was a conference last year called the Birthright Conference, and he had several speakers, and it was kind of a, an exploratory thing to say, hey, there are people reading this book. People are starting to talk about these topics. People are starting to really want to get together with like-minded people. And uh, we, Dan and I actually looked at attending that conference at one point, and for whatever reason, it just logistically didn't make sense. Some of you recall there was a whole lot going on kind of early summer and mid last year. So um, so we didn't go, but I did get the, uh, the lectures from it and did enjoy listening to them. And they are very much along the lines of what, and some of them are word for word excerpts from, uh, from this book. So with all that being said, um, let's get into chapter one of Birthright. And chapter one is called The Elder Race. So if you are thinking about chapter, if you're thinking about how there could be an elder race or, or, or if you are thinking about how did we get here, I want you to think about some of the other episodes we've talked about. Uh, Earth's Earliest Ages is episode one. It's the first episode of this podcast when it was just getting going. It was one of the very, very first books I talked about. And one of the things Earth's Earliest Ages highlighted, and that was a book from the 1800s, but one of the things it highlighted was uh, a really good case for the fact that there's uh, something that happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, meaning in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. So what what happened? And even before then, when you say, okay, what what happened before the earth? 
was there anything before the earth when God created the heavens and the earth? Did he create them all simultaneously or was there different things happening at different times? And for those of you who are thinking this is blasphemy, we, you know, we'd spend a lot of time on different episodes and over different teaching areas saying there is a lot to be said and a pretty good biblical case to be made that the original, the Sunday school version of creation, if you're the kind of the Western evangelical church mindset, the Sunday school is, is God made everything on day one, you know, heavens and earth. And, and by day six, you know, before day one, there was nothing but God. And by day six, everything that has been made was made. And that means all the heavenly hosts had to be made, which means the entire fall of Lucifer had to happen in this very short period between the fall of man and the original creation, you know, when Lucifer is literally days old. And I, I, I have a lot of problems with that. And I do think that the, the biblical description of creation includes the certainty that there's a lot of event and time that we're just not given detail on because it's not relevant to us, not extremely relevant. It's relevant enough that we can get enough out of scripture to realize that something happened. Something happened before man was created and the earth existed before man was created. And we know that because when it sh- when we get to Genesis 1-2, the earth is in a state of chaos and a state of, of destruction. It's not a pristine new creation. God is restoring the earth to order out of chaos in that uh, Genesis chapter 1 creation narrative. But the earth is there. And it's described in the Hebrew with some pretty dark spiritual terms. So the question is, what happened before that? And we'll talk a little bit about some other places in scripture. So, you know, we're not just, uh, you know, we're not just uh, making up new theology. This is not new theology. And I think it is a, a an accurate theology and a theology that is consistent with how the ancient Near Eastern Hebrew mindset would have understood some of these things. So we haven't even gotten into the book yet. But the the first part is the elder race. And one of the very, very first points that we get to in chapter one is the rejection of anthropocentrism. And what that is, is man-centeredness. We humans tend to we, we tend to think that the whole story of creation is about us, that it starts with us and it ends with us. And that's, it's a natural way for us to think. And we've interpreted the Bible a lot that way, but that doesn't mean it's the correct interpretation just because it's the easy and low hanging or natural interpretation. So anthro meaning man and procentrism meaning man at the center of, we don't want a, if you want to understand scripture, don't put mankind at the center of everything. We're not, we're important. And there is a really important part of the conversation that applies to us. But we are not the beginning and end. God is the Alpha and the Omega, the Creator God. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And man is somewhere in the middle. And then around man, you have other beings that we call the heavenly hosts or fallen angels or all these other terms we put around it. Uh, and some one of those terms that you're going to hear come up a lot is the sons of God. So Dan, I don't know if you have, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. I don't know if you have, it's in the first couple of pages, his uh, definitions and his discussion of the def- definition of extraterrestrial and alien. So t- Tim Alvarino, within like two pages of the book, he throws out there the words extraterrestrial and alien. And on page, um, uh, on, at the bottom of page two, 
He says, and we'll go into his definitions of those terms, but he says, with our terms thus defined, may we venture the question, do extraterrestrials and or aliens exist within the biblical paradigm? The answer is unequivocally yes. So Dan, if you want to talk a little bit about how he defines extraterrestrial, alien, a lot of that's on page two, but that's very important because these concepts come very much into play throughout the entire book and and kind of bring some really helpful spotlight on the extraterrestrial narrative, the alien narrative, the, the secular narrative around extraterrestrials versus the biblical narrative around extraterrestrials. So Dan, anything you want to add there about uh, how Tim Alberino and Birthright approaches those co- topics? Yeah. And you know, this is a, another place to go back and listen to the episode on extraterrestrials where we, where we discuss some of this and the, and the biblical case for it. And like you said, he jumps right into it. And I mean, even in, in, in that first chapter, he makes a pretty compelling case uh, that I think is, is hard to argue that, um, th- that if you look at all the scripture and look at, look at it in context, that, that you could come away saying, oh yeah, there's, there's really no such thing as an extraterrestrial. Um, what he's, um, let's see, on page two, he says, um, an extraterrestrial is a being whose provenance is not planet Earth. Notice that I did not say residence. Provenance is where you come from. Residence is where you reside. Uh, and so, you know, are, are angels from planet Earth? No, and do angels exist? Yes. So, you know, it's pretty easy to make that connection. I think uh, as traditional Western Christians, a lot of times we kind of put angels in this other category of just uh, spiritual. And, and and he talks about in this book that we can put um, the term spiritual or supernatural and kind of just slap it on things we don't understand to, to put them all in this, in this box where they don't really belong. And so, you know, when, if you're willing to, to not just slap the term spiritual on something and, and say, well, angels aren't really uh, a, a extraterrestrial because they're just a spirit, uh, it, it's pretty hard to make that case as well when you, when you really dig into the scripture and history of it. Um, and then he goes into the word alien and uh, uh, says an alien is a foreign being from an extraterrestrial world. However, generally speaking, any non-human being of advanced intelligence may be considered alien to the human species, regardless of providence. Um, and, and goes into some other details there. So, uh, you know, he does dive right in and and continues to make the case. Um, and, and I think Joel mentioned already that then he talks about um, kind of these angels and, and he talks about how angels is a is a term of position or occupation and not uh, a, a type of being. but you know what we, as Christians commonly refer to as angels, we, you know, I think we have a general understanding of what we mean when we say that, um, that he would put them, this class of beings, that's, 
existed before us. You know, they were still created beings. They were still created by God. They were still created through Jesus and for Jesus. But he calls them the elder race. And uh, that's going to be, that's an important term to know for the rest of the book. Uh, it's just, you know, that there's the human race and there's this elder race that people are very similar to, but uh, that we are kind of a, a younger sibling to. And I, I think that that idea of siblinghood is very important because the assertion there is that mankind or humanity is related to, by creation, related to this elder race, but not identical with this elder race. One of the, he, he uses a, uh, an analogy to describe mankind that I think is helpful. Uh, at the bottom of page one, he says, man is not alone in the cosmos, nor is his existence a random occurrence. Like a decorative float rounding the bend in a parade, his appearance was carefully coordinated in the procession of time. Although his participation is of great importance, the parade was not organized in his honor, and his float was not first in the procession. So that kind of puts this perspective on mankind. He says, look, mankind matters, and mankind is of great importance. But if you think of the passage of time or the history of the cosmos like a, like a parade passing by, mankind is not the, the center of honor in the parade. The parade is not organized in his honor. He's not the judge of the parade. We're a float that comes through. We're a display. We're a spectacle in the parade. And we're not the first float. We're not the first spectacle. So, so the case he's making is that the, there are heavenly hosts that predate man. Now, is that biblical? And the answer is yes, absolutely it is. You see uh, a, a classic place to go is um, Job chapter 38. And in Job chapter 38, then God himself asks Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I stretched out the measuring rod? Were you there when the sons of God shouted for joy and the morning stars sang together? I'm saying that you know from memory, so it's kind of Joel's version, but he uses this term, the sons of God and the morning stars interchangeably, or, or at least juxtaposedly saying, you weren't there. Job. That means you, you, mankind, was not there when I was creating the earth, when I was first setting it up and putting its foundations in, there were other beings that were watching. And these other beings are use this phrase called the sons of God. You've heard us talk about this in some of the earlier episodes, especially the Heiser episode. If you haven't heard that one, that's going to be a really helpful one to understanding this. There's a reason we're doing this book after we've done, you know, 10 other loosely related episodes on these concepts. So there's a very good biblical case to be made that mankind is not at the very beginning of time or creation and may be very far removed from the beginning of time and creation, and that mankind is not the first created being. We're, we're not the first thing to exist after, you know, after uh, you know, the Trinity, and the Trinity has no, no origin. It, it's always there. It is the beginning. So there's this other race there, and it can broadly be thought of as the sons of God and Tim Alberino's phrase for it is the elder race. Think of the elder race like your your older sibling slash half-sibling. It's these older siblings that are there that predate humans and that interact with humans. And this, again, is biblical. One of the phrases we hear, one of the terms we hear a lot is angels. We've said this, but just as a refresher, 
Angels is not a catch-all phrase. You can't just say angels and demons and, and say everything is either an angel or demon or God or man, and that that's all there is. That's not accurate, and that's not biblical. Angel is not describing a being. It's describing a job. It's a, it's a job of messenger. And even within angel, you can break down all different kinds. And even biblically, you can go through people's encounters with and interactions with angels, and they're all over the place in terms of what these heavenly beings look like, what they do, what their jobs are, what their rank is, what their authority is. And you get a really rich and complex picture of this heavenly civilization where there, there's a lot going on. And that's setting aside the whole idea of demons. You know, what, what are demons? People say fallen angels. Well, no, but, uh, biblically, that's probably not the best definition of what a demon is. And what is a fallen angel? Anyway, you say, oh, well, th those are the third of the angels that, that, that fell with Satan. Okay, where exactly is that in the Bible? Where, where does it say that when Satan fell, that a third of the angels rebelled with him? A lot of you are saying, well, it says it in Revelation. I would argue that it doesn't. I would argue that the, when it's talking about the dragon in Revelation and his tail sweeping a third of the stars out of the sky, again, morning stars often refers to heavenly beings. Uh, it doesn't only refer to heavenly beings, but it often refers to heavenly beings. And we're not sure exactly what kind of heavenly beings in a lot of cases or, or stars in general, but that's a future event in Revelation. So it's, or at least there's a good case to be made that it's a future event. So what, the reason why I'm bringing all this up is because I, I want to shake the, the, you know, the the loosely held stale kind of beliefs that we have about what is an angel? What is a demon? Where are we? How did creation look? And say, let's let's shake that up and really look at what the Bible says. And that's kind of what Tammy Abrino challenges. And then let's use the right terms and let's get specific. If there is a being that is not of earthly provenance and it's not human, then it is by definition both extraterrestrial and alien. Now, does that mean it you know, as secular science would say, oh, it, it's a, it evolved on another planet. No, that's not what we're saying. Does that mean that we're saying, oh, the Bible says there are little green men on Mars? No, that's not necessarily what we're saying. We're not saying that there are, that, 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 that there aren't. We're, that's not part of the conversation at this point. What we are saying is if you're going to take your Bible seriously, then you can't just say, well, there's this, this spiritual world out there and none of that's really real. So, there's not really any extraterrestrials or aliens. They're just these other weird spiritual beings that are sort of there and are just part of my belief system. But I don't have to actually believe that they exist or that they exist the way that I exist. So set that aside and open your, your thought process up a little bit and say, wait a second, am I more real than an angel? Or... Am I less real? Go ahead, Dan. I know you've got yeah, something. So, so I think that's a that's a really important point, and that's something I think we we've come back to on a couple of these episodes. Is that uh, you know that as Christians we try to have this huge picture of God in our mind, and we we try to have the proper perspective. But the more we dig into these things, the more we realize how much bigger all of this is than even our wildest imagination would have led us to. And, and so part of what he gets into with this stuff is that not only are our angels real and, and, and physical and not just, 
some floating spiritual thing that we can kind of dismiss in our minds. Um, but but they had like a real culture and that there's, um, you know, the culture is not unique to humanity, but the things that we do are, are mirrors of, of things that have been before us and are beyond us. And so, you know, he talks about uh, a system of culture and government and um, wars and armies. And, you know, he talks about how God is referred to as the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies uh, more than 240 times in the, in the old Testament. And so just, and you this, hear, you hear me say every time that comes up, I go, what hosts? Yeah. <laughs> like, which, right. which hosts? Exactly. Where, where, does God have armies upon armies upon armies of humans on the world? Or is it talking about something else? And biblically he talks about his armies coming from heaven. Yeah. And we like to kind of think of, of everything being the, the human centric, like we talked about. And, and when you branch out and, and kind of expand your view to see that there's all this other stuff happening and there's so much more to the picture and that we are just a, a piece of it. And, and obviously, you know, there's the balance of don't say humans are, are more important than we are, but we also got to be careful not to go the other extreme and, and say that we're not important. I mean, we were important enough that Jesus became a man and died on a cross to save us. I mean, the fact that we, Jesus chose to became a man is that's a big deal. It's funny because we get it we get it wrong in both directions. First of all, we think we're more important because we think we're the only thing in a lot of cases. And then we think we're less important because we think we're the only thing. And we don't realize that when the Bible says angels rejoice when a human chooses Christ. We don't realize that that's an extremely big deal. That's a cosmically big deal. And the cosmos, just in case you're wondering, is much, much bigger and more important than Earth. Now, Earth is at the center of a lot of focus of the cosmos. I don't know how much. I don't know what percentage because I don't know how big the cosmos is. But there, there is a lot going on with respect to mankind. But we, we being mankind, really are the least informed. In the whole process, we're the least informed. I think uh, if you... If you remember the last episode where we talked about trusting your Bible, I explained the, this idea of the Bible being you know, what I affectionately called stage notes. It's like we humans are thrust onto the stage with a lot of bright lights, and the Bible is there to tell us kind of the plot of what's going on. And it says that there's a play, and you're in it, and it's important, and uh, it's not about you. And, but here, but what you do on this stage is very important, but ultimately it's about God and it's going to glorify God, whether you choose him or don't choose him, it's going to glorify God. But meanwhile, there's this whole audience out there and this whole production crew and this other players in the play that we don't really know, see, understand. The Bible gives us a little context on them. And that's a little bit about what we're talking about tonight. And what, what I'm, uh, what we're challenging you to consider is the play is much bigger than you think. The audience is much bigger than you think. The play has been going on longer than you think and will go on longer than you think. And your role in the play is bigger than you think, especially your role after this first life experience, if we want to use that, that term. You know, the, what we do with this life on earth is really, really important, but it's really, really important because of what it means for the next life, which is also really, really important. And depending on how you look at it, more important because it, it's everything we're setting up for. 
So is your eternal life more significant than your earthly life? Yeah, but is your earthly life really significant in terms of how it affects your eternal life? Yeah, it really is. So we're not trying to to rank order everything. We're trying to expand the perspective. One of the things that um, Dan mentioned is we have these phrases that we kind of skim over in our Bible and we tend to just think of them in very anthropocentric terms. And some of those phrases that uh, Tim Alberino calls out in chapter one are the phrases king of kings, lord of lords, prince of princes. We hear these things. Uh, we even sing it in Sunday school or shout out to Adam Peake. He and I did a, a duet of this in, in India. That song, king of kings and lord of lords, glory, hallelujah. So we, we sing about it, but we don't ask, well, what kings? Is Jesus really just the king of earthly kings? How many actual monarchs are there on earth right now? I don't know, a handful? How many of them can you name? Two or three? Is When we say Jesus is king of kings, is that what we're talking about? Is, is that his royal title that that he outranks the king of Monaco, if there is one? I don't know, there probably is a prince of Monaco or Liechtenstein or whatever. We, you know, we know there's a British monarchy and... but. Is that are we when we think strictly in anthropocentric terms, we're kind of we're we're really shrinking what this means because if you think in cosmic terms, kings are a big deal, and even biblically, there are many cases where when you look at kings, lords, princes, principalities, when you look at how the Bible uses these terms, it's not using them in anthropocentric ways; it's using them in cosmic and heavenly ways. And and that's very consistent with the New Testament and the things that Paul is saying all the time. He's saying your your struggle is not even against flesh and blood. It's not even fellow mankind. It's powers and principalities and authorities that you, you don't you're not even familiar with. It's way way bigger than you realize. So all all that to say that it's time. It's high time that we expand our perspective on what mankind is and the context in which mankind sits. And that should be a motivating and exciting uh, thought process. It, it should be a, you know a little disorienting and maybe a little scary the first time we if it's the first time you're thinking about it. But more and more, it, it's really exciting because it means that Christ is bigger than we gave him credit for, and God, our God, is bigger, and there's more going on, and the the stakes are higher than we thought, and the the things that he says in scripture are more exciting and that heaven is not just us sitting around on, on clouds, you know, playing harps that the, the Bible never indicates that at all. It indicates a, a, a whole lot more going on. And if anything, we have an extremely narrow perspective of it. So yeah, if you think ahead, back, Dan. you think back to the uh, imagine heaven episode and you, where you have people just getting a little glimpse of heaven and talking about how much more real it was and how much more life there was and how this life really felt like a shadow. And we'll get into that more as we talk about the second chapter. But, uh, you know, just I would just challenge you to, you know, expand your mind and, and realize that this is so much bigger than, uh, than, than we can even imagine as we're talking about it being bigger than we can imagine. Uh, Tim, Tim Alberino makes the point uh, when he says, if you describe the kingdom of God using biblical terms, the Bible supports all the following, that there are multiple thrones, lesser thrones, but thrones still that are not God's throne, that there are delegates, princes, regents, as we mentioned, also powers, authorities, principalities. Principalities are regions with regents 
who rule them. A principality is ruled by a prince. There are courts, there are councils, there are armies that the son of God, the preeminent son of God, which is Christ. So when we say sons of God or elder siblings, we're always keeping in mind that Christ is supreme and distinct. He is not a created being, whereas all the other sons of God are created beings. Christ is biblically preeminent above all uh, other sons of God. And because we call him the son of God is not shrinking him. He is the son of God. Is there a biblical allegory for that? There is. The, um, the son of Abraham is Isaac. Did Abraham have other sons? Yes, he did. He had several, actually. But Isaac is often referred to as his only son or his begotten son. But he wasn't literally his only son, but Isaac was the son of promise. He was the son of inheritance. So it put, take that to the nth degree, and that's Christ. Christ is the son of God. He is the only son of God because he is distinct and preeminent above all other sons and, and pre-exists and also is the creator of, of all else. And that's in John 1, 1, uh, or all of John chapter 1. And then also Colossians 1 has some pretty good context on that in many more places as well. So Christ is preeminent as a son of God. It's not a blasphemy to say there are other sons of God. In fact, it says that we are given the right to become children of God. So you can't just freak out and shut your ears to things when the Bible uses these terms and these language, and it's not using them loosely or metaphorically, it's using them literally. So we'll, so that that's what part of the, the thrust of chapter one is the kingdom of God is what Tim Alberino calls a celestial civilization. And he says, when you talk about angels specifically, we're just using that broad term angels, just meaning heavenly beings. In scripture, you see that they have a spoken language, a written language, that they eat and drink, that they possess and wield and presumably build technology, and that they are subjects within an organized kingdom. And that that kingdom is an entire celestial civilization beyond mankind. So even when we say angels, we can't think of angels as just this kind of little, you know, spiritual semi being. And that was that question I asked earlier, who's more real, you or an angel? I'm not looking for an answer on the question, but it's worth thinking about. <laughs> they, who who knows more about Christ? Who knows more about God? Who understands more of what's going on? But also angels um, hold humans, angels who, who are loyal to the creator God, hold humans in very high regard, not because of humanity in and of itself, but because Christ is human. Christ is the human. And that's a lot of why the fallen angels and those who reject God hate humans. So that's going a little beyond the scope of the book, but it's worth keeping in mind. Well, another thing to note there is, you know, so often when you see uh, people interacting or seeing angels in scripture, uh, the, the reactions are usually fear. Uh, you know, they're terrified because they see something that they immediately recognize as uh, beyond them, right? Like more powerful. Uh, I don't even know what exactly is, is conjured up when you see something that, you know, you and I haven't seen. Um, but in, in Revelation, right, John sees an angel and falls at his feet to worship the angel. And, you know, that's another very natural response. And uh, in Revelation 19.10, the angel recoils at it and says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And and so 
in this chapter, he talks about how, you know, that the alarm for the angel is not just telling us not to worship him, but also it's dangerous for an angel to be worshipped because that's part of the temptation that is is a big problem that we talked about, you know, in the book of Enoch. Um, But just that the picture that even though they are something that if we saw one, we would be either terrified or tempted to worship or both. Um, but their response is, I'm a fellow servant with you, right? And and that we are both servants of Jesus and that the only one worthy of worship is God. I think that discussion around angels is really important to consider. And Jesus seemed to have this perspective and even spoke specifically about this perspective. Uh, This is one of the verses, verse passages that's referenced in chapter one of birth, right? Is Luke chapter 20 in verse 34 to 36, where Jesus says, uh, it says, so this is Jesus replying to um, some people who had asked about marriage and how marriage works in the kingdom. And it says, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. So we got to think, what does the sons of this age even mean? But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. So right there, Jesus sets up two things. He says, there's this age and there's that age. And there's a lot we could go into around what does he mean by this age versus that age? He's not talking just about present and future, although he is talking about future things that will come to pass. So he says, there are some who are considered worthy to attain that age, which we, uh, if that's us, we have not yet attained it. So going on into verse 36, for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So most of you have probably heard that verse, but good grief. I mean, do you see how much Jesus is talking about? Like he's talking about things that are huge, really big deal. He's talking about what we are, what our future is, what's happening. And we just, we hear that verse referenced all the time, just saying, oh, well, angels don't marry. Yeah, that's in the verse, but that's not the point. And and the angels that did marry in Genesis chapter six, verses one through four were rebelling against God. It's not something they were supposed to be doing, but he says a lot about human beings. He says, we will be equal with the angels. Well, if you read Psalm 8, it says that mankind is lower than the angels. So in other words, the resurrection is is an upgrade in what mankind is, and we become sons of the resurrection and are sons of God and equal with the angels. So if all those things that we were saying before didn't make sense or seemed really weird, well, that's the kind of language that Jesus uses. He talks about ranking He talks about this age versus that age. He talks about angels. He talks about humans and angels coexisting. He talks about different levels of authority and rank between them. And he talks about humans being uh, one thing now, but another thing in the future, if we are considered worthy to attain to that age. So Jesus really was was comfortable talking about these things. And if you've never seen all that in that verse before, it just goes to show how we're not, we think of things so anthropocentrically, and we just look at that verse as a commentary on angelic marriage. It it is, but it's really a commentary on what man is and what angels are and how we're different, how we're the same and how Christ reconciles those things. 
I want to bring up one other passage that is part of uh, chapter one. And this is a really important passage. And this is uh, something that Paul talks about in Ephesians 3. And I want you to listen to how Paul is describing what mankind is and what we're doing with this life. So Paul, Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 8 through 11 and then 14 to 15. And I'm going to put it in, uh, I prefer to use the ESV. So let me just pull that one up uh, real quickly. Okay. Ephesians 3 chapter 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. There's that word ages again. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So he's saying that this, this is that, that parade float of humanity is coming around the corner. And what is it doing? Well, it's making known the manifold wisdom of God, but who's it, to whom is it making it known? He says, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So that that's directly out of the New Testament that what the church is doing when you are a follower of Christ is you're making the manifold wisdom of God, this great mystery that was hidden for ages, which we take very much for granted or, or don't try to understand, is being made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Going down to verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So that says there are families in heaven. Well, we just said there's no marriage in heaven. So how does families work? Well, think about elder siblings, the elder race, the family of God. God has a family in heaven, and he's asking us to be part of his family. So uh, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then it goes on so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that being rooted and grounded, you may have strength to comprehend. And it all comes back to love and knowing the love of Christ and uh, being filling us with the fullness of God. So if that doesn't give you some good grounding that our perspective should be larger than just anthropocentrism, that it's not just about man, then you need to spend more time in your Bible because the Bible, even the words of Christ and the explanations of the words of Christ uh, by Paul are very clear that we are part of God showing something about himself to a much larger uh, class of beings and that our role is temporarily on earth and permanently in heaven as part of that family of God. And there's a, a hundred other places we could go. But speaking of family, one of the portions of scripture that is brought up and that we're all familiar with, but haven't really thought about from this perspective that Tim Alberino brings up is the prodigal son parable. So Dan, I know you spent a little time on that. So go ahead and talk about uh, what Tim Alberino has to says about has to say about the prodigal son. Yeah. So, you know, the parable of the prodigal son is one of those, the most famous parables in scripture. And uh, there's, there's been lots of good uh, sermons preached on it. There's been some good books written on it. Uh, but this is the first time I've ever seen it 
talked about from this angle, which he would argue, he argues that that it is about um, the reu- the reuniting of the family of God, you know, the elder race being the older brother, and you know, points out how you know, humanity returning after squandering our portion of the inheritance by you know by sinning and um, making those mistakes that that the the father's answer conveys uh, the message of the gospel because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found so uh, it does it makes a very compelling case that um, when you look at all those pieces that that is certainly part of what it's talking about which doesn't take away from all the other applications of that parable i think that parable is very multifaceted but the the case he makes for it also being a um, a parable that talks about things on a on a bigger cosmic level uh, is is makes a pretty good point and uh, and it certainly fits with with the gospel message i think that's um a, a really interesting and helpful reminder that so much of scripture whether it's parable or prophecy has multiple applications that are correct now it has it i'm not saying it has multiple interpretations it has multiple applications so it's not the same thing as just saying well everybody gets out of a parable what they want to see in it there's that's um, a very secular approach to scripture you know, that Jesus shared that parable for a reason and the truths in it are true and specific, but they can be applied on multiple levels. So moving into chapter two, so the, the chapter one was called the elder race. And we talked about the, the rejection of anthropocentrism. What do we replace anthropocentrism with, by the way, it's Christocentrism. If man is not at the center then Christ is at the center and that sounds cliche, like a very Sunday school thing, but it actually changes how we read the Bible. If we take mankind out of the center of it and like Paul put Christ at the center of it and say the whole point of mankind is that he's used by Christ as a demonstration of the wisdom of God in front of a larger audience that is not specifically mankind. Okay, that just put Christ in the center and mankind out of the center. And it's not something you hear uh, preached in great detail very often. And it's so an the, important note there is just that, that mankind was created for a purpose, right? Mankind didn't just pop into existence and then we figure out a way to be useful, but that, that God created us very specifically with a very specific purpose in mind from the beginning. Yes, he, he, he did. And the, that purpose is hinted at uh, when it comes to why the book is called Birthright. There's a, there's a point to man. Man was made for a reason. Uh, and I'll, I'll spoil it just to put the teaser in your head. The reason we were made specifically for dominion over the earth. That was our immediate application and immediate job and immediate point of the creation of man was to have dominion over the earth. And that's going to be a major theme in this book. As we get into chapter two, chapter two is titled Shadows of reality. And what chapter two is going to try to do in this book is flip us upside down in how we look at reality and what we think of as reality versus what, how Bible, how the Bible describes reality. And just to make that um, immediately uncomfortable, um, I want to 
quote from Hebrews chapter 11. Here's one of the Hebrews has a lot of these weird phrases, but here's one. By faith, we understand that the worlds, that's plural, were prepared by the word of God, the son of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. That's a verse from the Bible. Have you ever heard anybody try to explain that one? That's a tough one. But I think it's a really good setup for chapter two, which is saying, look, seen versus visible, shadows versus reality, shadows of reality. We're, and the point he's making here is we are often looking at shadows of reality and saying the shadow is the reality when really the shadow is reflecting the reality that we can't even fully see or understand. And he starts chapter two right at the beginning or in that first section, there's a, 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 a statement that I think is helpful. And he says, we have established so far through the exercise of deductive reasoning that the human race indigenous to planet earth is the younger sibling of an elder race whose provenance and habitation are elsewhere in the cosmos. Before we examine the origin of this scenario, let us indulge in a brief digression concerning the nature of the universe itself, which we will find useful for the comprehension of forthcoming topics. We must now embark on a road of speculation. So he begins to speculate and to explain how our perception and the more we understand our perception, and this, this is very true right now, you know, dear listeners, this is something that you're seeing in the news a lot. You're seeing a lot, uh, depending on your news feed and what you click on, you're seeing a lot of news around scientific study and breakthrough, and it's just constantly calling everything into question, especially when it comes to physics. I mean, you can go look up uh, recent lectures called Space Time is Dead because the concept of space and time no longer stand on their own. There's something more foundational that we're starting to be able to prove is real, but we have no idea what it is. Um, or, or there's no consensus at all on what it is. You have um, the whole study of quantum mechanics. Not only is it calling, uh, you know, computation into question. It's there's it doesn't follow physics. It doesn't follow Newtonian or Einsteinian physics or principles. It gets really weird. And Einstein even called it spooky. Um, it and we we use this phrase, and we'll get into this a little bit. We use this term supernatural to start to describe things that we really can't explain. And the more we learn about our place in the universe and our reality, the more it seems like a setup. It seems like when we get too big, it no longer makes sense. When we get too small, it no longer makes sense. And we kind of live in this weird in-betweener stage where it's almost like we have this subset of reality that we perceive and experience. And I think that's true. And I think it's also biblical. And we'll talk about, I mean, Paul says it distinctly, but we may bring some of those passages forward. But Dan, I want to hand it over to you for um, this idea of shadows in chapter two. And uh, I know you appreciated the, uh, the the reference to Plato in here and his description of shadows. So how does that help us understand what Tim Alberino is trying to teach us in chapter two of Birthright? Yeah, so part of what he's talking about in in this chapter is just, you know, get, get your mind around that there are more more than three dimensions there's the 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 universe is made up of more than we can see and perceive and that there's dimensions at play that that help explain a lot that we kind of put into a lot of things that we put into the supernatural bucket 
just because we can't uh, observe them or explain them away by science uh, as we currently understand it. Uh, it's important to, to recognize that uh, multidimensional existence that we're a part of that we that we don't really see or experience. And so again, if you go back to that Imagine Heaven book where you, you have people who were experiencing a brief glimpse of heaven and talking about how not not just four or five dimensions, but that there's many more dimensions and that you know our human language fails to even uh, have the words to explain what it's like when you experience more dimensions than than how how our language is built. I mean our language is built around, explaining life as we experience it and we experience most of life in three dimensions so um he he goes into uh the allegory of the cave uh, let's see and if you, it's not a long passage it's beautifully written it for the if those of you who had plato and undergrad or something this will sound familiar but uh dan if you want to read sections or even all of it you're welcome to uh do you remember what page that's on uh yes well i've got it open right here Sorry. i have a lot of marked places all it's right. not a very long passage yeah i think it starts on page 21 yep So this was written by Plato. Um, and it's longer than I remembered. Uh, so it's it's basically a it's about a group of prisoners who are condemned to uh, be chained up in a cave and uh, face a, a, a single wall, and they're unable to turn their heads. And so their comprehensions of, of the world outside, of everything else that's happening outside the cave, is all happening behind them. And so all they see, their only experience of the world, is the shadows that are cast upon this wall. So, okay, so you know, setting aside eat, drink, exercise, all this, he's setting up this hypothetical scenario where he's saying, what if your conscious existence was you are sitting in a cave with the entrance to the cave behind you and you can't ever look at it. You can't see it. You don't know it's there. And everything you perceive is the wall in front of you. And all you're seeing on this wall are the shadows cast by the activities that are happening behind you outside the cave. And that's your whole perception of reality is what you're seeing on this wall. You're seeing these shadows on a wall and, and that's your whole interpretation of your existence of reality of, everything around you. And what that's very interesting because it puts you in this three-dimensional place, but unable to operate within it while you're looking at a two-dimensional projection of a multi-dimensional thing that's happening behind you, but you're only seeing this two-dimensional version of it and it's distorted and you're trying to interpret what reality is based on these shadows. And your reality is that you're more real than these shadows. Yeah. And it's a fascinating uh, illustration because, you know, you and I are, are, 3D beings, and we we have seen shadows on a wall, so we can picture what it would be like if, you know, knowing who we are, but knowing if all we ever saw was this uh, shadows on a wall, how what how much we're missing out on, 
And I would actually argue that the amount we see now is is even less than the people who see just shadows on a wall. When we when you look at just how much bigger the world is and creation is and what God has done and um, what what we have to look forward to uh, in heaven and in the new earth is going to be so much so much richer and so far beyond what we can imagine that it that even even the allegory of the cave falls short of of expressing um, how much we do just see a shadow of reality right now and and so that's really what this chapter is about is trying to get us to to accept that that there is a whole lot more at play than we can understand and that at, at best you know we're we're the shadow and we think that we're the bigger reality than the the flickers of the, of the reality that we see and if if you take that that cave allegory and say, okay, if you were sitting in a cave and the shadows you're seeing are, it's very limited to just whatever activity happens to be near or at the mouth of the cave. And the point is that there's all, everything else that exists is outside that cave and it's infinitely bigger and more interesting than what's happening right at the mouth of the cave. But what's happening right at the mouth of the cave is showing you shadows and all, all you as the person trapped in the cave who doesn't realize you're trapped in a cave, all, all you can see is that there's something else going on out there, and I don't really understand what it is, but it seems to be a lot less substantial and meaningful. It just seems to be a lot of waving about, and every now and then I can see something that looks a little bit like me and seems to have some interaction, and and uh, maybe I'm hearing a little bit of stuff, but I can't really put it together because my reality is this rock that I'm sitting on and you know, and this wall that I'm looking at, and I can feel and I can see and I can touch that, and that's my reality. And, and then the, the point of the allegory is, okay, now realize that you're the shadow and that the reality is all the substance going on outside the cave of which you're not even aware. And that's where the analogy starts to break down a little bit. But is this biblical? And I want to point us to another passage from Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, if you read 4 through 8, that's the love is patient, love is kind does not envy, does not boast, does not root, proud, self-seeking, et cetera. You hear that at weddings, but people don't usually read the next few chapters, which is nine through, or the next few verses, which is nine through 12. So 1 Corinthians 13, nine through 12. For our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. Does that sound a little bit like Jesus saying this age and that age, saying we are imperfect, but perfect will come, which is Christ. The imperfect will pass away, which means there's something new in its place. And then Paul uses an analogy instead of a cave and shadows, he's talking about what it is to be a child versus an adult. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And what's he pointing out there? He's saying, well, children for all their wonderful qualities, they have an extremely narrow and limited perspective. They don't know much. They know some important things, but there's a whole lot they don't know about the rea about reality and about how the world operates. And he's not saying that cynically. He's just saying our, our reality is so limited. Our perspective is so small. It says, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So he's not just saying, oh, childhood is dead. You hear this verse thrown around a lot being like, oh, I used to be a child, but now I'm a man. Now I understand it. No, what he's saying is in the context of what he said before, which is there is 
an imperfect existence that we have, but there's a larger, more mature existence that we'll ultimately grow into and replace it with something much bigger than we could have understood before. And then he explains it this way. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, that's almost like seeing a shadow. We're seeing a a 2D reflection, but then we shall see face to face. So right now we're seeing these very limited dim projections, but then we'll see the reality and he uses face to face. We'll we'll see Christ uh, as, as who he really is. Then he says, now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. So he's saying we're the ones who have to catch up to reality. It's not that reality has to catch up to our perspective of it. It's well, we're the ones who don't get it. We're the ones who are behind, who are trying to uh, to catch up. Yeah, and there's another interesting uh, thing that he points out here. He talks about the passage in Second Kings chapter six, when when you talk about just you know that there's more going on than we can see, and there's more to reality than we can perceive. So he talks about this passage where Elisha and his servant are are in a city that's surrounded by the Syrian army. And the Elisha's servant is saying, you know, just just worrying about what's going to happen. We're, we're surrounded. And Elisha answered, uh, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray Open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And and he points out that you know the prayer was that that the servant's eyes would be opened, not that this spiritual army that's invisible would be made visible, but that but that the servant would have eyes to see what's already there. Yeah, he says the army wasn't invisible. It was imperceivable or imperceptible to, to the servant. And he has a, a statement before that that says, man's ability to perceive the universe around him is hamstrung by the present deficiency of his degenerate condition. So our condition is degenerate and therefore deficient, which hamstrings our ability to see the universe and the reality around us. We are the problem. And I don't mean that in a, in a self-deprecating way. What, what I mean is we need to recognize that what we see is not all that there is. So was that army in that second Kings passage, was that army already there? Yes. Was it visible? Yes. Well, how come the servant couldn't see it? Because he wasn't able to. He wasn't able to, not because of a problem with the army, but because of a problem with his eyes. And that's why Elisha prayed for his eyes to be open. The change had to happen to the young man. It had to happen to the servant in order for him to see what was really going on. He was unable to see what was going on before. And that was because of his condition, not because of the condition of the army. And I'll point out again, what, is that army made of human beings? No, it's not a, it's, it's, it's something uh, beyond humanity. There's, a verse that I um, I want to camp out on for just a minute, but before we do that, and I want to go to that First John verse, but before we do that, let's talk about uh, supernatural. We've we've alluded to this a couple times, and um, 
Tim Alberino really comes down hard on this idea of us just saying supernatural this, supernatural that, angels are supernatural, we're natural, and this this lazy uh, dualism or this dichotomy that we create. He points out that the word supernatural is not in the Bible, and he's right about that. Supernatural, and this is a quote from the book, is a catch-all term to define phenomena we do not understand to pretend as if we do. We say, well, we know we don't understand that, so we're going to call it supernatural. And we understand that supernatural is just everything that's something else. And what he's saying is the Bible does not separate our ability to understand into um, one reality and then supernatural as this kind of lesser reality that's just completely beyond us. Now, we do have the separation of, of the perfect and the imperfect, and we do have the separation of us in this life versus us in the next life. But it doesn't mean that the next life is less real right now or any less certain or any less natural right now. So what, what he's saying is we should not just throw everything under this term of supernatural because it engenders a dualistic view. And that dualistic view is that there's like our reality and then another reality and that there's somehow... Um, not uh, that th- that they don't get along. When the whole point of scripture is that they do get along, and in fact, we're called into that larger reality. And I, it's helpful to me to think of our reality as a subset of true reality. We're we're in true reality right now. We really do exist, and our reality is real. We're just experiencing a limited a a, a lot of limitations in larger reality. And why would that be? Well. For whatever reason, and there are many reasons and we could speculate, but God wants us to experience reality this way first and go back to the childhood concept. Do you want an infant to be you know, thrown into the hard, cruel world on day one? No, you want the infant's reality to be very limited to a few beings who love and care and help and teach so that it can learn to perceive and eat and drink and eventually walk and learn what's dangerous and what's not dangerous. You can't just throw an infant into a uh, into a mature, uh, harsh reality. It literally can't survive. He also, when um, he describes or references the, uh, the shadows on the wall allegory that from Plato, he says, look, if you took the person who had been chained in the cave, who was looking at that wall and jerked him around and made him stare out the front of the cave, well, first of all, it's going to be horrifically painful. He's going to be moving in ways he's never moved before. He's going to be staring at light brighter than anything he's ever seen before. It's going to be burning and glaring his eyes and scaring him to death. So his point is, it's it's disorienting and scary and very uncomfortable to just be confronted with much larger realities than we already knew. Um, will we at some point? Yeah, we're, we are promised in scripture that we're going to see more of that. And we just talked about that passage in first Corinthians says, then we will see face to face. And I think it's good to, to long for that. But I also think we shouldn't limit ourselves to say, well, it's impossible to see any of that right now because it's not, we, we have Christ now and Christ is the reality. Um, And this is a big part of this chapter two point that uh, Tim Alberino is making, he's saying, you know, we're trying to come back to this, this, you know, this unified theory of physics, this unified theory of the universe. We're trying to come back to, I mentioned earlier, just space and time are not foundational. Something else is foundational. 
Well, what is foundational? It is Christ. Christ is the foundation. He is the singularity. Christ is the unified theory of all reality. You see it in uh, Revelation 3, where Jesus is called the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. You see it in John 1, 1 through 3. It says all things are reconciled through him or, or all things are created by him and for him. You see it in Romans eleven thirty six, where it says uh, all things are by him and for him. So the more you push on reality and peel it back and peel it back and peel it back, the more you're going to get to Christ. Right? That's why he's called the way, the truth, the life. That's why he's called love. And these these uh, very, very fundamental things that scripture keeps raising up as, as, as the, uh, the answer. So that's a big part of chapter two is Christ is the unified theory. The, he's the thing that Einstein and Hawking and these others were trying to get to. They postulate saying, oh, could we get to the mind of God? And what Alberino says is it's not about getting to the mind of God. It's about getting to the word of God. And he actually becomes quite literal with that. And he says, look, the word of God is sound, vibration, energy. And those are things that as we study, you know, physics and quantum physics, sound, vibration, energy, consciousness, these things that are all the, the, the word of God are actually are fundamental uh, to uh, how we're interpreting reality. So Dan, anything else on uh, chapter two? And then I, I want to go back to um, the first John three, two verse and we'll kind of tie it off with that verse. So any, any other commentary on what we've discussed, anything on chapter one or two before we um, wrap it up here? Uh, yeah, I'll just read the last two lines of, of chapter two. Uh, he says, consciousness is an indication that there is more to biology than meets the eye. It may ultimately prove that human beings and indeed all conscious creatures are inherently hyperdimensional. And, you know, just, just the, just the reminder that um, that there is more more to more to us even than than our experience would indicate. Um, and I appreciate bringing up you know the Jesus as the singularity. That's a big part of the of the chapter, and 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 a key for for understanding all of this is is always going to be tying it back to Christ. Um, but yeah, that's, a, that's what I got. That hyperdimensional, uh, that, that little explanation he gives there is really interesting. Cause he says, he says, here's an example of how we can, how we can know that humans are hyperdimensional, meaning there's more, uh, physical reality to us than we think, but that dimensional physical reality is not just a uh, height, width, depth, breadth, et cetera. He says, here's a, here's a question. How can you be possessed by multiple demons. When he says you, he just means how can a human being, and we know biblically, a human being can be possessed and inhabited by multiple demons. Where are they specifically? He's like, in what space are they possessing a human? They're not like in the molars or the fingertips or just in the mind. Like how to, how can you have a legion of demons fit inside whatever a human being is? And he likens it to, you know, if you're, if your car is carjacked and you have a bunch of carjackers cram into the car. Well, you can't have a legion of them in the car. There, there's a limitation on space. You don't, you, you don't have one in the carburetor and one in the gas tank. That's, that's not how it works. It has something to do with some bigger idea, this bigger concept of what we are and what our consciousness is and how important that is and how it does affect reality. 
So we, I don't want to get too woo-woo on consciousness right now, but that, that's a, a really interesting point that he makes where he says um, that you, you have to kind of take into account that there are, there's hyperdimensionalism to a human being that we don't really appreciate just because we, we don't really see, understand it, but we are affected by it. And we have these weird applications of it where we go, oh, I have no idea how that works. And there are many other uh, things we could call into question, like with NDEs, you know, wh- where is the human? Where is it going? Well, everybody who's experienced an NDE says, well, it's not my body, it's something else. And we don't want to just throw that blanket term, well, that's just the supernatural portion, or that's just the spirit. Well, what do we mean by just the spirit? Because anybody who's had an NDE comes back and says, what I just saw is way more real than what what I'm seeing while I'm in this body. So let's keep that in mind. When we come to Christ being the singularity, it, there's two sides to that conversation because one is Christ is the beginning and end. He is the singularity. And we've talked a lot about how small mankind is, but keep in mind, Christ is human. He became human. He is fully God and fully man. He didn't shrink into humanity. He humbled himself into this version of humanity, but he also is the forerunner of the resurrection. And when people who have NDEs, for example, see the resurrected Christ, or when you talk about about the resurrected Christ in scripture, or when John sees the resurrected Christ in Revelation, they're still seeing resurrected human Christ. Christ did not throw, he he didn't give up all, all of his humanity. He still is human. And he is the 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 predecessor he leads the way for us into the resurrection and that's why he's talking about there is this before and this after there is this thing there's this this these aspects of humanity which we cannot really see or appreciate right now but which are extremely real there's a verse i want to wrap up with and it's in first john chapter 3 and I think this verse bears a whole lot of meditation. I think it would be worth reading this verse over and over, pondering it and thinking carefully about what it says. So I'm going to put it out there kind of slowly, thoughtfully, and let this is what the Bible says. First John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So beloved, we are God's children now. Are there sons of God? Does God have a family? Is that family preeminent among all other creation? Are those the the ranking princes in the cosmos? Yes. Is Christ preeminent? Is he the prince of those princes? Yes. Is the gospel that we can join that family? Yes. And that Christ has bought our our, our right into that family. You can see it in, in John chapter one, not first John, but the gospel of John chapter one to all to, who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we join this family and that's not Sunday school family, a Sunday school of, oh, we are God's children. We're in his family. Jesus loves the little children and, and father Abraham and all this. Yes, yes, yes. But wh- how big is that? 
it's really, really, really big. It's cosmically big. It's big on a heavenly civilization scale. So we're told in this first John chapter three, verse two, we are God's children now. We already are. We just don't really understand what that means yet. We don't really get it yet, although we already have that that truth about us because of Christ. And then it goes on to say what we will be, meaning we will be something else. It doesn't mean we will no longer be God's children. It means what we will be as we learn what it means to truly be God's children has not yet appeared. There's something in the future in the resurrection of Christ, when he leads us in the resurrection, that ascending is something which we have not yet experienced. We only get flickers and glimpses of it now, but we get a little bit of an idea of it is when we, when we see Christ. But we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In other words, our eyes will be opened. And why is that so important that we talk about that? Why are we spending all this time reminding and reorienting and recalibrating ourselves to that truth? Well, it's in the very next verse. It says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So when we believe what we talked about in verse two, that we are God's children now and that what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When we have hope in Christ that way, then it says we are purified as Christ is pure. It says everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we become more calibrated and and focused on who we really are as God's children and what that means and what a big deal that Christ is the preeminent son of God and how critical it is that we are part of God's family. And then we can start to understand what this life is about, why dominion over the earth is important, who our enemy is and what he, what it is he's trying to destroy and why he hates us so much. What a what is this great mystery that Paul describes in the New Testament and says this manifold wisdom of God is being made known through Christ's church. Why it's so important that we are the body of Christ on earth, what it is to be human and what it is to be a resurrected human and how important it is that we have hope in the resurrection. So all this stuff becomes really exciting and true and is there for the taking if we believe it and have faith in who Christ really is. And that that is at the center of it all. Who is Christ? And I, I hope this conversation that we're beginning with Tim Alberini's birthright book and uh, that we've alluded to so many times in so many other episodes, I hope the conversation is becoming more and more real to you as we hammer these things home, um, discuss them, bring in some uh, speculation, which we recognize we're not, you know, we're not right about everything, but we do see what we see in scripture. We're trying to really push hard that these things in scripture are true. And there's, I think we all have a shared urgency that we really need to understand these things more than ever before, because there's something going on in the world 
and some I know some of you get upset when when we say that, but we don't get too specific about it. Wait, we we will, we will. But the world is changing very quickly, and the reality that we live in is changing very quickly. And for example, how many headlines, if you read the news, did you see last week on UFOs or extraterrestrials compared to how many you would have seen ten years ago? It's everywhere. It's part of the common lexicon right now. Well, is it important then that we talk about what is an extraterrestrial? What what is the cosmos? Where are we in the cosmos and what else might be out there and what could it mean? It's very important that we understand those things before there is a secular narrative that starts to get shoved down everybody's throats. And it's going to come back to dominion of the earth. It's certain to. And humans have a rightful dominion over the earth by Christ. And this is going to lead straight up into the the conflict and the tension of the end times. And that's why it's really important that we can read our Bibles, understand our Bibles, understand that the battle for dominion of the earth is happening now. It's been happening ever since man was put on earth, but it's escalating now and coming to a head sooner for us than it has for any other humans that have ever lived. I mean, that's logically true, but it's also realistically true that we're we're a, a whole lot closer, I believe, to that to that escalation than uh, than previous generations. So, um, we love you guys. We appreciate you going on this journey with us and listening to these episodes. I want to thank Dan for joining me and hosting these first couple of chapters. We encourage you to get a copy of Birthright if you want to read ahead. Go ahead. Uh, if any of you knows Tim Alberino, uh, feel free to put in a good word for us. We'll see if we can get him on the show. We've never tried to do do anything like that before, but that'd be cool. If not, you're going to get what his thoughts are uh, here anyway. Um, and we look forward to having Brian with us as a host on the uh, on the next one. So expect the next uh, few episodes to be in this Birthright book as we continue to walk through it. And believe me, we've got plenty more interesting material and stuff that whatever you're thinking it's going to be after that, you're wrong. It's going to be something else. So I can say that. And Dan Dan knows what I'm referencing there. So thank you all very much for joining us. We hope that uh, your Bible study is coming increasingly alive and that you were able to think and reconsider some things that were new and exciting. And most of all, keep in mind, Christ is the center and you are secure in Christ. If you don't know Christ and you don't know what it means to be secure in Christ, then I encourage you to uh, get into your Bible and look at those things like we talked about tonight, that passage from 1 John 3, chapter 3, everyone who thus hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. What does it mean to hope in Christ? Well, it starts with understanding who he is and accepting that that is true about who he is that he is who he says he is and that we can be his children if we trust in him and if he is our Lord and if we look to him as our savior and if we choose to be uh, loyal servants to him in his kingdom rather than serving ourself, which ultimately is serving the enemy. And if that doesn't make any sense to you, feel free to reach out to us, mysterybibleon at gmail.com or if you're at a good church or have some people in your life that you know are believers, talk to them about it. The time is now. It is important that you figure out who you are and what you're doing because every willful act that we make, I am believing increasingly is an act of spiritual warfare and we want to be acting willfully with intent and purpose and understanding for the glory of Christ. We love you guys. We look forward to the next episode.